April showers bring Mayflowers, but what do Mayflowers bring? A special offer from the DSR Network. For the month of May, become a member and receive 20% off a monthly or annual membership. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, exclusive bonus content, our evening members-only newsletter, and an invitation to continue the conversation via our members-only Slack community. This offer won't last, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS, one word, to receive your discount. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C., and I am joined here in the Washington, D.C. vicinity by Edward Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hi, David. How are you? Good. And Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Isn't, Hi, it, a law, isn't it a law center or is it a law school? It's a center. It's a center. I don't know why it's a center, but it's a center. Yeah. No, well, that's, that's very popular. Everything revolves around it. Well, the center is a very popular topic these days, given the budget deal. Um, and everybody in the world was sort of biting their fingernails. We talked about it with the G7, like they're looking at America, like America is crazy. And then all of a sudden, seems like President of the United States and the Speaker of the House maybe weren't quite as crazy as we thought, or maybe the President's sanity made up for the crazy. I don't know how it worked out. What do you think the message the world ought to take away from the fact that the United States chose not to blow up the world economy, Rosa? Well, give us time, David. I, I think oh, you're being a little premature in concluding that we are not going to blow up the world economy. I don't think we will. We just want to mess with it a little bit, just you know, for fun. Um, we like to scare people. I, you know, I mean, that is pretty dysfunctional, even in and of itself. I don't think. Assuming at the moment we're recording, there there hasn't yet been a vote, but assuming that the uh, deal reached between Biden and the Republicans stands um, and we avert disaster for another couple of years, I don't think we should come away from that thinking, see, the system works fine. It's all good. I mean, it is not it is not normal or healthy to have a you know ritual moment every few years where we walk up to the brink of destroying the economy and then salvage it just to the very last instant. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's not a, a particularly healthy way to do business. Um, so even if sanity does prevail, um, I don't, I don't think the rest of the world is likely to find this terribly reassuring about the state of American political will to, to do its bit for global stability. You know, I think the rest of the world should take away from this boy, those people are crazy and we would be crazy to be overly dependent on them and, and you know, talk about sort of 
risk decoupling or whatever our latest terminology is, uh, I'm sure many of our, our economic partners are wondering how to, you know, decouple from us, which, which lucky for us is going to be very difficult for them to do. De-risking or, or decoupling. De-risking, de-risking, right. Decoupling. It's de-risking, de-risking or decoupling. You don't want to. Thank you. Thank you. In fact, we, de- we my, de-risk uh, in order not to decouple. Um, I, uh, right, I've got my terminology all mangled. Um, but Gw- Gwyneth, uh, Pal- yes, the, but- Gwyneth Paltrow would call it conscious decoupling. Conscious no, decoupling. Well, if conscious, she knew, and conscious, she would be wrong. But she would be wrong. She should I'm call sorry. it conscious so de-risking. Yeah, that's I'm so sorry. That's right. Decoupling, decoupling is out. De-risking is in, um, and all of it should better to be conscious than unconscious, I suppose. Well, here, let me reach up onto one of the shelves of the silo from which we broadcast, or the third sub basement of the Ministry of Snark, as we once used to say six years ago, um, and grab down. Corey Shockey's tiara of optimism, uh, Ed, and I'll put it on my head and it looks great. Um, uh, right. Fetching. Thank you. Yeah. I had it out for the coronation. Um, but, uh, uh, let me make a case and, you know, you can then make the counter case or congratulate me for being correct. I think the world could get a message that's a little different from Rose's gloomy message. I think the world could look at the United States over the past few years and say, wait a minute, this country isn't as crazy as we thought they were. In 2020, they elected Joe Biden. When Donald Trump doubled down again and backed a bunch of lunatics in the 2022 midterms, they backed the lunatics. I mean, they backed backed the same candidates, and the lunatics almost all lost. uh, the people who stormed the Capitol one by one um, are being uh, held to account uh, for very, very serious charges. They're not getting away with it. The former president of the United States has already been indicted in New York City and will stand trial come next March. But it looks very likely like this summer he's going to be indicted again. He might be indicted twice. He might be indicted for the Mar-a-Lago things. He might be indicted for the Georgia things. That shows a, you know, a degree to which uh, he is uh, sane. Meanwhile, the government of the United States, despite everything we read about it being dysfunctional, is just hammering out major piece of legislation after major piece of legislation. And every time it does, the pundit class gets together and they say, well, that's the last one we'll see. And then there's another one, um, and this this is another one. Um, uh, the Durham report, which was you know a crazy right wing uh, effort to debunk Trump and Russia, ended up being a nothing burger, and everybody saw it for being a nothing burger. Yeah, the right wing media was like, but the po- the point is the institutions are kind of holding. There is a degree of resilience. There is a degree of sanity. America not may not be completely crazy yet. Oh, no, it, it certainly isn't. And you've given the strongest case, um, you know, for things going as well as they could have in the last two, three years, um, most recently with, of course, this debt ceiling deal. Now, if you look at what the markets were pricing in, Rosa mentioned the markets, in terms of the risk of default, I don't think they ever priced in anything more than about 2 or 3% risk of def- default and political 
uh, pundits, probably if they'd been asked to pluck a number out of the air, would have said one in five, something much higher, more like 20%. Um, now, where your story could go wrong um, is in the 2024 presidential election, where I would give higher than a two or 3% chance of Trump winning. You know, maybe maybe I give it a 20, 25% chance. And, but it's a little bit like if you forget the numbers, the probability numbers, it's a little bit like the debt ceiling thing. It's like, well, if it doesn't happen, then we'll all breathe a sigh of relief and think, well, this all looks quite sane. The debt ceiling deal that Biden pulled off and will hopefully be passed by this weekend is a perfectly reasonable deal. Um, you know, and it's nothing like the sort of pyromaniac rantings with which uh, McCarthy's crowd began this whole brinksmanship process. But of course, if it had happened, it would have been catastrophe. Ditto for 2024. If Biden's reelected, great. Um, things carry on normal, a calm, temperamentally sort of balanced, maybe aging, but um, emotionally mature uh, and experienced president. Uh, America makes f pretty sensible decisions, all carries on um, pretty much best we can hope. Whereas, of course, if Trump wins, then, you know, we're totally fucked. So there is that kind of sort of asymmetry of risks. And even if and even if those risks are small, a lot smaller risk of a default than a Trump um, being reelected, um, even if those risks are small, they're so dramatic that I don't think the world is going to calm down. I think they will continue to hedge. Um, and by the world, I mean America's well-wishers. I think they, they will continue to hedge um, against something going really catastrophically wrong. It's, it's non-trivial. Well, you know, you're part of that pundit class, and you just said that the pundit class overreacted compared to the markets. I didn't. So maybe that – pardon me? <laughs> I didn't. You said I, the markets <laughs> underreacted compared to the pundit class. I, yeah, well, that's another way of putting it. I, I, I plead guilty to most most charges against the pundit class, but on this particular one, I plead innocent. Because you thought it was all going to work out. Yeah. Well, so, Rosa, you know, you wear the thorny crown of entropy. I mean, you're the bleakest person we know. You sit there in low light and uh, and fret about everything. You know, is it too sunny out today? And those flowers could give me allergies and all that stuff. So, like, you know, as you look at this, um, uh, how do you how do you feel about the prospect that not only have we had this streak, but Donald Trump's probably going to go and get indicted and maybe convicted of things, and he may not be the candidate. And uh, there's a lot of evidence from midterm elections that have turned on things like abortion uh, rights um, uh, that the Republicans not only lose, but they lose by fairly decent margins, particularly when they run to extremes, which they seem to be want to do. And that maybe the next election will be the election we stick a dagger through this MAGA craziness. And that actually <laughs> what Ed is saying is, is any of this resonating or are you just laughing at me? I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm chuckling kindly at you. Yeah, um, like, you know, like, you really are lost. wearing that tiara. Yeah, he's lost his mind. Yeah, go on. No, I mean, that could happen. It absolutely could happen. And I hope it happens. And we need to try to make it happen. Um, but I, I don't think anybody should rest easy at night thinking that's probably what's going to happen. Uh, uh, I think there, as Ed said, there's a very substantial possibility that 
that doesn't happen, that we end up with Donald Trump back in the White House. Um, and, you know, that could happen. Donald Trump could end up back in the White House because the Republicans cheat. But Donald Trump could also, you know, he could end up back in the White House by winning, you know, fair and square under our completely unfair and distorted rules. Um, either of those things could happen. I think that the second is a lot less likely than the first, but it's not completely impossible. You know, there, I, I, do, I think that the vast majority of our compatriots are reasonably sane people. Um, but we, as you know, as we've discussed many times, we have an electoral system. Um, number one, we have an electoral system that that is rigged in favor of uh, the not completely sane. We have an electoral system that is, is skewed in all kinds of ways, structurally speaking. You know, the Senate gives disproportionate strength to a number of small, underpopulated states that skew Republican, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we've we've seen the far right you know, making zillions of active efforts to subvert the freedom of the vote. I mean, I, the most recent being in Texas just a couple of days ago, you know, where the, the state GOP put, I think it was Houston, right? It was only Houston under a special set of voting rules, no other county. Uh, it's hard to come up with any explanation other than a desire to subvert the vote in a heavily democratic county, you know, and, and that's going on in many parts of the country. You know, so the the assumption, even if the vast majority of Americans are perfectly sane and don't want a repeat of Donald Trump in 2024, the assumption that he somehow wouldn't win, I think, you know, gives much too much credit to our our voting system. You know, if we were if we were any country other than the United States, you know, some some helpful UN mission would come in and help us fix our completely unfair, screwed up electoral system, which is profoundly anti-democratic in all kinds of ways. Um, so, so I'm not, I'm not actually pessimistic, but I'm definitely, uh, as you know, I think, you know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And I, and I do worry that we, we still, despite everything that happened in 2020, despite January 6, 2021, I think that we are, we are collectively a little, still a little too willing to kind of go, well, you know, let's just hope that doesn't happen rather than working on the assumption that the worst could absolutely happen and try and, and, and be trying to figure out, well, how do we prevent that? And what do we do if it does happen? Okay. Let me try different optimistic tack here. You know, Joe Biden handled this negotiation in a way that at least to me seems sane. Uh, I know it seems sane to Ed because he just wrote a column today. Um, and I don't know if you accused the president of sanity, but it came pretty close to that. You, you essentially said um, that he handled the negotiation well, and the Republicans, you know, <laughs> weren't weren't up to dealing with a rational negotiator. Um, I, if I'm mischaracterizing, you know, c correct me. Um, but you know, I, I think this is because he's experienced. But I also think Joe Biden has a trait. I was thinking about this. Maybe I should write something about this. But I also think Joe Biden has a trait that is very rare in Washington, D.C. And his, his team has a trait. And that is they learn from their mistakes. And, you know, Donald Trump said, well, I never made a mistake. And certain other presidents who we like have been a little bit reluctant to admit that they made mistakes. Uh, and a lot of people place a, you know, high degree of value to 
ideology dogma and, and what we call policy. But I can give you a bunch of examples where Biden learned how to do this better, uh, do, do the job better. Some are, are like this negotiation. He, he, he was the point person I won 11 years ago that didn't have as great an outcome. There was an outcome, but, but I think the Democrats and the Obama White House gave away too much. Uh, so he's done that better this time. But when I think about foreign policy, I think the thing that really distinguishes the Biden administration is that a bunch of the things they came in with, they've been willing to change. That, you know, um, they came in with this idea of autocracies versus democracies. And when Ukraine demonstrated that that had alienated part of the world, they stepped away from it. They went, uh, let's, you know, pull the Band-Aid off in Afghanistan. And, and that turned into a bit of a mess. And they realized they had to socialize things with allies better than they had before. They went too hard towards Cold War with China. And when that seemed to be taking us to the brink of something that was bad for both sides, they've pulled back a little bit from that. Um, uh, you know, Biden uh, wanted to go and push for Build Back Better, a really big bill, and he couldn't get it through. So he got some of it through. And then later, when nobody was looking, he put a bunch of it into the Inflation Reduction Act and so got another trillion dollars worth of stuff through. I don't know. He, see, he seems like a good student of his job, willing to admit his errors and grow from them. What do you think, Ed? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very much a subscriber um, to the view that the character of an administration and how its officials interact with the world outside and each other and the media and so on is set by the character and idiosyncrasies and personality of the president. So I wouldn't just contrast Biden um, making adjustments, which you quite rightly list. All, all of these are correct. They have been adjustments. Most recently on China, there's been a, a tangible course correction, not a change of mission, but a tangible um, change in, in the way they go about attempting to fulfill that mission. Um, I would I would say that this reflects the personality of Biden, you know, who has seen it all before 15 times. He's uh, been around more blocks in D.C. than pretty much anybody else. Um, that is taken to be um, his Achilles heel, but it's also his great strength. Um, and so I wouldn't just contrast Biden there to Trump, who, of course, is sort of cartoonishly at the other end of the spectrum personality-wise, but I'd also contrast him to Obama. Um, I think the Obama administration was pretty glass-jawed. I think it was obsessed with um, keeping the flame around the Obama brand and mystique. Um, and I think, you know, just as a journalist, dealing with the Obama administration was a different world to dealing with the Biden administration. And again, you know, let's, we're skipping Trump because we know that story too well. Um, so this is very much to do with the character and personality of, of the president, I think. Um, uh, and I approve, you know, my, I, I think this is the right kind of temperament and experience, which are the two most important qualities for that job, way more than, 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 than IQ. Um, th those, are the, the, those are the right kinds of qualities for, for this job at this time. 
in America's recently very, very turbulent, high-stakes political story. So when you're referring to the character flaws of the Obama administration, did you mean Rosa in particular? I was only thinking about <laughs> Rosa. Yeah, I mean, purely Rosa. Sorry, Rosa. <laughs> really, when people think of the Obama administration, they mostly think of me. You, you were a very honorable <laughs> and notable exception to that broad brush characterization I just made. Yeah, what do you what do you think of Ed's assessment there, Rosa? I, no, I think that's I think that's absolutely right, and and I it's one thing I I absolutely give this administration an enormous amount of credit for. You know that that and and I always thought that Biden was underrated. You know, I I I I always thought that Bob Gates is mean crack about you know the whatever it was something to the effect of you know he has the uh, uh, unique ability to have been wrong on you know, every single major foreign policy issue. I, I don't think that was fair. I don't think it was, it was fair then. I also, you know, I also think that it is an profoundly underrated skill in a politician, not simply to be fickle and go whichever way the wind is blowing, which is not actually a particularly uh, uh, impressive character trait. In fact, it's a horrible character trait, but to, to be willing to change your mind, you know, to be willing to take new information on board and say, okay, um, that didn't work the way I hoped it would. I'm going to try something different. You know, we're going to adapt. We're going to adapt our strategy. And I and I think that Joe Biden actually has that, and it's quite rare and quite valuable. And I also think that the people around him have that. You know, that they're. I mean, anyway, this is a good crew of people. They're not perfect by any means, um, but they're also not jerks. Uh, and frankly, that's an improvement over we won't name any names, but some of the folks on the Obama team. Yeah, no, I think it's I, I think it's true. By the way, I I and in fact I wrote a book to this effect. Um, noted that the Bush team in their second term, that Bush himself actually learned and pushed back on Cheney, um, pushed back on Rumsfeld, moved to the more sort of cool-headed approaches of Steve Hadley and Condi Rice. Did some remarkably good things, particularly in the last two years. Um, I, you know, I don't know that most people give the Bush administration because it made one of the biggest mistakes in U.S. foreign policy history credit for things like PEPFAR, which was a gigantically beneficial initiative. Um, but but they also learned. He learned. He learned a little bit how to be how to be president. Um, uh, the. Uh, Consequence of all of this, though, uh, you know, there's an upside <laughs> that there seems to be, you know, a bit of a, I don't know, where, you know, is this a, is an attribute or is it a strategy? Because yesterday, President Biden um, had said something to the, some, he was asked, like, what about giving attackums to the Ukrainian army? And uh, this is the sort of long-distance missiles um, uh, that, that had been the red line, that the U.S. government said, we will never give these because this will piss off the Russians. Um, but every single sort of red line that there has been, every single decision not to give the Ukrainians something, uh, has been reversed. Now, is that a strategy or is this just part of this quality of learning from mistakes um, or is it a flaw? Should we have done all of this a lot sooner? 
And that's a good question. I mean, I wouldn't say every single one. Do you remember at the beginning of the invasion last year, there was acute pressure and a very heated debate about whether um, NATO should declare a no-fly zone. You know, Biden administration very wisely ducked on that and very wisely, I don't think, would ever consider that because that would be a de facto declaration of war. Um, and this was really, it was very interesting watching that debate um, that um, there were a lot of political people recommending that, but nobody with any military knowledge for a second signed up to that, um, uh, you know, unless they were the sort of uber, uber, uber hawkish end. Um, he's agreed essentially to, with the training of Ukrainian pilots with F-15s, um, uh, 16s, sorry, to transfer F-16s to Ukraine, which is a big change of red line. Um, and although it won't have immediate consequences, the trading and the transfers, etc., will take months. Um, it, it's a potential game changer in terms of Russia's long-term calculations militarily with Ukraine. Um, the red line's already been crossed. Essentially, the decision's been made. There'll be no one moment where F-16s will suddenly, you know, change the equation. This will be gradual. So Putin's bluff has been called on that. So I guess that is an example of adapting as the war goes along. If he'd given F-16s at the beginning, would that have changed the, the nature of this war? I think yes, but I understand I understand why in the context with the almost instant nuclear saber rattling that Putin um, started to indulge in, I understand why there was a high alertness to that risk at the time, which has receded since. Um, so I'm not particularly critical of that decision. There were others. There was there were a lot of debates about the HIMARS. There were a lot of um, debates even about tanks, all of which you know ha have involved relaxing the red lines. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where we go after F-16s. Um, the um, attackums, I guess, would be obvious. The long-term artillery, but um, long-range artillery. Um, but any attempt, I think, by Ukraine to retake Crimea um, would remain a red line. Would remain a red line in wash in in this in this White House. I bet. I, I bet you're wrong about that. I, I have no, I have no inside information. I'm just saying, for the same reason that we've just seen each one of these dominoes fall of red lines, I think that the the Ukrainians, for their own reasons, going to feel they need to take some of Crimea back. I don't know about all of it, but I think they want to they want perhaps the northern strip along the way. Um, but but what do you, what do you think of all of this, Rosa? Has this been canny? Um, uh, uh, sort of uh, portioned out uh, support, uh, you know, sort of just in time uh, support with certain kinds of weapon systems, or has it been too little, um, uh, if not too late, uh, then later than it should have been? I wouldn't actually characterize it either way. Um, I think that. It's not particularly clear that we have a coherent approach to this. I think that we keep being taken by surprise by events and responding, whether that 
that doesn't necessarily mean it's too little, too late. It, it might be, you know, in some cases it may be too much. Uh, you know, we don't, I, I, I mean, I've said this before. I know this is not a popular position, uh, uh, but I, I still do worry about escalation possibilities. I think that the Ukrainians are pretty smart about playing us um, and have been pretty smart about getting us to keep passing our own red lines. Um, and I, I don't know enough to really feel confident in saying, oh, well, this is good. It's, it's belated. It's good. It's going to bring a more rapid end to this conflict versus, boy, we are getting sucked further and further into the conflagration that we feared from the very beginning. But like the, like the proverbial and not real life frog that, that doesn't uh, get out of the boiling pot, uh, it's happening little by little, so we are gradually abandoning our sensible concerns uh, because it happens little by little. We keep getting sucked in a little bit deeper until it's going to be too late. And and I I don't know. I mean I'm I'm I remain fairly worried about the potential for further escalation. Obviously, the Ukrainian drone attacks uh, in Moscow. Uh, you know, and I can't, and I can't for one single second blame the Ukrainians, right? I mean, I would be doing the exact same thing in their shoes. Um, um, you know, they are facing an existential threat. Uh, they have been facing, you know, s- attacks in their homes for a year now, more than a year now. Uh, they have been dealing with Russian war crimes and crimes against humanity. I don't blame them for a single second, but I do worry that the combination of Ukrainian, Ukrainian totally understandable efforts to escalate. I know the Ukrainian government is saying, oh, it wasn't, it wasn't us, sort of, maybe, kind of, um, but it probably was sort of, maybe, kind of them. Um, you know, and, and the U.S. Uh, uh, gradual willingness to get sucked further and further in. You know, I, I heard Mark Milley uh, uh, being interviewed on the radio uh, this morning, and he was saying, well, we've made it clear to the Ukrainians that they can't use any any equipment or weapons provided by the United States to attack Russia. And obviously, from the Russian perspective, that's a distinction without a difference. I mean, it's, it's to a significant extent, not completely, but to a significant extent, military support to Ukraine is, is fungible. And the fact that Ukrainians don't use a particular object that the U.S. gave them, uh, but use something else, well, you know, to make attacks inside Russia is sort of neither here nor there. So I, you know, I, I have the same worries I've always had. I, I would love to see this conflict come to an end. I would love to see Vladimir Putin uh, behind bars at the Hague, um, uh, et cetera. But I am not feeling super great about how things are going. I'm not sure that things are going in that direction as opposed to going in the direction of a potentially everybody getting sucked more deeply into an ever more dangerous conflict. Uh, let's continue to talk about that, but we're going to do it in a minute after we take our usual break here in which we say goodbye to folks who are not members. And we say, hey, become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It's like $5 a month. We've got like so many podcasts right now. We've got a daily podcast that does the news from outside the U.S. that you don't normally get. We've got a Monday spy podcast every so often we've got a Tuesday books or newsmaker podcast. We've got a Wednesday podcast, which is this one on foreign policy, a Thursday one on, on politics. We've got a new one coming on defense issues on Fridays. We've got Michael Weiss's podcast, which is, uh, uh, foreign office. We've got the podcast with 
Kavita Patel and Norm Ornstein called Words Matter. Uh, we even have the weekend podcast that combines global affairs with baking called The Secret Life of Cookies. Uh, we've got a podcast for uh, rising up audiences in the policy community. Uh, and if you're a member, you get to hear the whole podcast of each one of those things. That's like a ton of extra content. So, you know, sign up, become a member, and support this growing um, tiny enterprise. Uh, uh, for those of you who are members, however, stand by. You can now hear the rest of this discussion. <laughs> 